Okay, this is Psalm 32, three through seven. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Thank you, Bethany. You guys can grab a seat. I don't know about you, but, uh, but most of my life, this season of Lent was kind of a stranger's tradition. Um, it was something distant, foreign, um, kind of popped up here and there uh, in the springtime, but was never, never really a part of, of my own history and tradition of faith. Um, that doesn't mean that it wasn't around. It was around. But when it did make it its appearance, it only surfaced, uh, at least from my perception, as a number of formal, predominantly negative rules and prescriptions, right? Abstain from this, give up that. Uh, all kind of set in some really hard boundaries, right? Like for 40 days, right? You, you give up these things, you stop doing these things, uh, all that kind of stuff. And some of it was really um, important things, like, you know, maybe stop doing things that were, were actually kind of wrong things. But some of it was like stop doing things that didn't seem so wrong, at least on the surface, right? Like eating chocolate, um, you know, uh, drinking uh, caffeine, which like probably is not a good thing, but like at least in my mind was just a, was not, a, not a bad one. Um, but, but while my tradition growing up certainly um, encouraged abstinence from all kinds of things, um, um, this idea that um, these boundaries of 40 days, coupled with my, just my ignorance of what Lent was, led me to assume that Lent was practiced by those wanting to make up for, to pay the price for a lack of holy living, right? So on the one hand, like because of my lack of understanding of what Lent was, but, um, and like just not having it a part of my own life, which was not necessarily a bad thing, but just a part of the tradition I grew up. Um, the boundaries of Lent, the hard, fast kind of boundaries of this season made it seem like those who were practicing it were paying a price for their, for their sin, right? Kind of felt that way as an outsider because Lent was a strange thing to me. Kind of felt like they were trying to make up for something, for a failure in their own life, uh, for a thing that has happened in their own life, for a failure in their own humanity, and that these forty days was their kind of um, their kind of way of may, paying the price for their own sin, right? And again, this is somewhat ignorantly, but that that was my perception. Or on the uh, when I was being cynical. Um, I thought Lent was just for people who wanted to do enough in a particular season to ensure that they could do whatever they wanted the rest of the year. So if it wasn't because they had this like ache in them to, to be right and they knew that their life was broken and sinful and all that, so they wanted to do something to try to fix it, it was the other end of like, hey, if I do something kind of hard for the next 40 days and I can, don't have to worry about anything for the next 300 and. 14 or whatever, right? Until this thing kind of came back around again. And again, that was just kind of my, like, somewhat ignorant understanding of Lent. That was just how Lent kind of hit my life. Does anybody else share any of those kind of assumptions or uh, similar thoughts about Lent? Has anybody kind of thought of Lent kind of those, in those ways? 
That's great if you haven't. Like, I'm just saying, this is kind of my story of Lent, right? And so for me, growing up, Lent was kind of seemed almost antithetical to the gospel. Like, the season of Lent kind of felt like opposite of what the gospel tells us. The good news that, 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 um, that I can't be right, except that God makes me right. That, that while Lent, again, it seemed to be this thing where people were trying to write something in their lives or ensure that they were right, and the gospel being this thing that, that said that, listen, like, you're, you're, you're not right. I make you right. That it's not your sacrifices that brings you into righteousness. It's my sacrifice that brought you into righteousness. These things didn't seem to connect super well for me. And so... Um, and so Lent was this kind of thing that I actually kind of kept at a distance on purpose, the season of Lent. And again, that may not be your history. And I, and I know we all kind of come from a little bit different backgrounds with traditions and things. And so, but I wanted to kind of share with you that because, because Lent has been something that I've been growing into, not just something that I grew up with, right? And so, um, and while I still definitely have some reservations about our cultural, Christian, and even evangelical kind of adaptation, impl- implementation of the Lenten season, um, that, that even though there's still some hesitancy there, ironically enough, because I think that our focus often misses the, the mark, the more that I've studied Lent over the years, the more that I've tried to, to have conversations with faithful and trusted brothers and sisters of other traditions and tried to learn about why they do what they do and how they do what they do, I'm beginning to recognize that there's something else to Lent besides this kind of trying to be right or trying to be righted, trying to get right kind of mentality that I kind of grew up with, right? Understanding. And that something else contends the Orthodox priest and theologian Alexander Scheman can best be described as an atmosphere. That something else of Lent is an atmosphere, a climate into which one enters. Lent as first of all a state of mind, soul, and spirit. Lent is a state of mind, soul, and spirit, an atmosphere, a climate, which for seven weeks permeates our entire life. For, for this period of time, these boundaries, these boundaries that were kind of hard for me to figure out, being an outsider um, to it, these boundaries are actually meant so that all of our life can kind of be immersed in it. That it's not just this kind of thing that's done on the outside, on the outskirts, but that everything kind of moves into it. Not, contends Schmiemann, to force on us a few Formal obligations, not to force on us obligations, rhythms of examine and fasting and lectio and all these different prayers and things like that, not formal obligations, but rather to soften our hearts so that it may open itself to the realities of the Spirit, to experience the hidden thirst and hunger for communion with God. To soften our hearts so that we might experience the satisfaction for communion with God. To allow us to to recognize that what we strive after and long for in life is life with God. And to experience that in fullness and wholeness. Softening our hearts, preparing us to not only to experience the hunger pangs for communion, for relationship with God, but the satisfaction of God with us, God for us, God in us, in Jesus is the focus of the second of the so-called penitential psalms, Psalm 32. Last week in our first psalm, Psalm 6, we saw that the journey mapped out for us in Lent, that Lent leads us. It's a pilgrimage, right? It's not just 
Um, it's, it's not just a trek that we're taking, a, a walk that we're going on, but it's a pilgrimage. We're leaving one place and we're entering into a new place. We're going after, we know where our destination is. Our destination is Easter Sunday. We know, what we're, we know where we're going through. We're going through the valley of the shadow of death. Like that's where we're walking. We're walking with Jesus to the cross, to the tomb, and to the resurrection. And we're on that path. We know where we're going. And, and Psalm 6 mapped out for us kind of the contours of that journey. What over the next few weeks will be like as we go and follow Jesus into this place. Both the place of death and the place of life. In Psalm 32, today's psalm, we, um, we find what is the climate of Lent, the atmosphere that um, the Shemimim talks about. We get acclimated to it, helping us breathe in the air of the spirit within which our entire life is pilgrimaged. Like not just what Lent takes us through, but where all of life takes us through, but especially Lent. The psalm begins at the end. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 32. You can open them up because um, the words won't be on the screen. So you can either open them up on your phone. There's some paper Bibles around. The Psalm 32 begins at the end. Chaz read it for us, but I'll read it again. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the person against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Listen, this Psalm is not is a crafted prayer, but it's not a running commentary. The psalmist begins the psalm this way to let us know that what is going to be prayed, unlike Psalm 6, is not a running commentary through the journey, not a Facebook live stream through death's shadows, and, and, um, but rather it's a biological testimony, a recounting of experience and the experience of the immersive selling truth within the valley's boundaries. So it's one who's walked through this, coming back and telling us what this journey is going to be like. One who's walked through this not just once or twice, but over a long period of time, and is coming back and telling us what this journey is like. The psalm begins actually a lot like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Blessed. Same word. Same meaning. Blessed. Already happy and whole. Already full. As one scholar helpfully expresses, the lucky ones. <laughs> already blessed, already whole, complete, full is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Already blessed, whole, full, lucky is the person against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Favored is the person against, no, against the one who the Lord does not impute sin, but imputes righteousness. These phrases are used in wisdom teaching. They're used in the psalm in the same way that Jesus used them in a sermon to mark that he is saying, telling us wisdom. He's helping us understand what is true about ourselves and the world and God, helping us learn to see the world as it really is. It's, these wisdom teachings represent a conclusion drawn from the reflection of a long deposit of experience. It's, the psalmist is like an older grandfather sitting down with his, his kids and grandkids around the fire and saying, listen to what I've learned. Blessed, whole, complete, full is the life of one whose sins are forgiven, whose transgression is, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sins are covered, who the Lord imputes righteousness, who calls righteous. This long-drawn conclusion for the psalmist is that 
the, for the living of a full life, there is nothing like being forgiven. That's his conclusion. You want to know? Hey, listen, guys, I've led this really, I've figured out what life is really all about, how to get life full and whole and complete. It's about being forgiven. There's nothing like being forgiven. Listen, the psalm doesn't trouble over this speculative question of life free from transgression. <laughs> this, is, this should be really freeing for us, right? The psalmist does not speculate on, did you sin? Did you transgress? Did you have iniquity? It just assumes, the psalmist assumes transgression, a breach of fidelity and attitude, action and affection for all that he speaks to. His kids, his family, his friends, himself. He assumes transgression. And the psalmist over his life has observed the killing burden of everyday sin. As we'll read in just a minute, as, as Bethany read for us, his body felt the death of sin. Felt the stings of death. But he also knows of forgiveness, that in forgiveness is the power for new life. Genuine forgiveness, says Walter Brueggemann, permits freedom to get on with living. That's the wisdom of this psalm and the psalmist. Genuine forgiveness permits freedom to get on with living. What the psalmist has come to know in heart, mind, soul, and body is that whole, happy, blessed life is the product of God's actions towards us in our brokenness. The whole, happy, blessed life is the product of God's actions towards us. Again, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered against against the one who the Lord counts no iniquity. Forgiveness, atonement, imputation is met in our vulnerability. If a blessed life comes through forgiveness, it's forgiveness that's met with our own vulnerableness. That's what the end of chapter, or verse two says, right? That in whose spirit there is no deceit. And blessed is the one, this full life comes through God's action towards us, in our openness to his acting, our openness to needing his action, our vulnerability, in those who there is no deceit, no betraying of trust in our Father's great mercy. That this is what the blessed life comes from, being forgiven and being open to the forgiveness. At the outset, the psalmist encourages us to take deep breaths in, to breathe in the air, the spirit of the valley's supposed walls. Because listen, when you're in a valley, in the valley of the shadow death, like we talked about last week, it feels dense, right? Have you ever walked through, have you ever gone on a hike, like where you're hiking through the mountains? We used to hike in the Wichita Mountains growing up a little bit. And uh, most of the time, uh, you know, there's trails that are marked out, but those get boring, right? So it's like, hey, let's get off trail and let's go through uh, I remember one time, I don't, I don't even remember how old we are, but we were walking up Baldy Cinco, which is like this little bitty, little bitty mountain, which was like the easiest mountain in the, in the range to kind of walk up. But we're like, hey, you know what? Let's go, I don't even remember which direction, but we're gonna go off course or whatever. And so as a kid with my dad, I was like, this is awesome. We're gonna get lost and it's gonna be great. And we're gonna find elk and like mountain lions and bears. There's no bears, but like, I'm, you know, I just assume that there's bears or something out there. And, um, and we're going through and like, Walking the kind of the, the, the kind of paved paths, like 
you know, it's pretty easy. Like even if like even if you're in kind of thick woods or whatever, like you got a clear path. But when you're in when you're on your own, just kind of making your way through, it feels like the forest just kind of surrounds you. And like you really have no idea what what's what, like what direction you're on. We went down in this little valley. Um, and my, luckily my dad and my uncle knew where we were going and they were adults. They could figure out ways to get out just to go up or, and things like that. But like as a kid, I had no idea. Like all I felt was like, oh man, I'm just completely surrounded in this. And I have no idea what's north, south, east, west, where to go, where to come from or anything like that, right? And in some ways, like the air feels heavy, right? It was a hot summer day. Like there are lots of foliage. Like it just felt like super dense, and for a lot of times, the Lent kind of feels that way for us. This walk towards the cross feels that density, right? It feels hard to breathe, in part because sometimes we're not clear exactly where we're going to go. Again, like, it's nice to have a guide, right? Somebody that does know where we're going. Somebody that, like, knows how to get us out of this. And we have that. We have Jesus, who's walked this way for, before us, right? His rod and his staff, his presence comfort us. But if we're honest, we kind of feel this density. And so the psalmist knows this. He's gone through this before. He's felt the density of it. And so he starts off like, because listen, when we go into the valley, it feels super weighty. And so he wants our lungs to be prepared for this. He wants us to be prepared for the ability to be able to breathe when it doesn't feel like we can breathe. And so he says, take in these deep breaths of the reality of where you're at. He states the beginning, the end at the beginning. And so let's do the same thing. In our space right here where we're at, let's take in three deep breaths. As you inhale, say aloud or in your mind, whichever you want, I am forgiven. Do it. I mean, this isn't like a, a thing to go do later. Like, like, do this now. Deep breath, I'm forgiven. That's what the psalmist says. I'm forgiven. Let the fullness of that phrase fill your lungs. I'm forgiven. Now take another deep breath. And verbally or silently say, my sin is covered. My sin is covered. Breathe it in. Let the reality of that fill your lungs. My sin is covered. And one last deep breath, really deep, from your gut, full of the Spirit, say, God counts me righteous. God counts me righteous. My guilt is not counted against me. This is the air we breathe as we enter in Lent, as we enter into the valley of the shadow of death. Now that we're prepared, our lungs expanded to breathe in the spirit, the climate of our Lenten pilgrimage, we can enter into the dense and suffocating first movement of Lent. Because the first movement of Lent is always the hardest. It's petition. Petition for a new life. It's prayer. It's pleading, right? We're lost in the woods. Don't make me sing that song. It's going to get in my head now. Um, um, yeah, that was sung all in our house last week. And so, so sorry for that. Um, but... We're in the woods. We want to get out, right? If you don't, if you don't know Frozen 2, it's great. You should, you should watch it. Um, but this plea leads us into confession and into proclamation. If we want to get through all the movements into life, right, into something more than the, what we entered into, we, got, we have to enter into petition. 
So having our lungs full of the spirit of Lent, we can exhale and express, pray through this first movement as a way to move into these other movements, to live new and free. So let's enter the psalmist experience of what, so it might be our own. So Psalm um, 32, verse 3 says this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. The psalmist expresses not just what his heart feels, but what his body feels. That when he was not open before the Lord, open to the Lord, life was drained. When he was not honest with the Lord, life felt in its very essence, his bones, his stomach, like it was leaving him. The same pangs we feel when we fast, an emptiness, a longing, a lack of energy, he felt at the absence of open heart and of honesty. He felt life being blocked. It says in verse four, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. This, this draining felt like it was the Lord draining his life from him. And doesn't it, like when we first begin to be open and honest about our own lives, or when we get to the place in life where life and faith isn't living up to the expectations that we have, doesn't it feel like the reason we're experiencing this must be because the Lord's wrath is against us? His hand is upon us. He's, he's drawing life from us for some reason, even if we don't want to admit it, right? Like we feel like this, this life is getting sucked out of us rather than life given to us. And as we saw last week, if you remember last week, we ended with this reflection on Psalm 6, um, where Psalm 6, like the, the psalmist, I got to a point where he recognized that, how could I even think, Lord, that you would punish me? That these pangs were not because of punishment. These pangs were to help me feel that I was losing life, that I had no life, that I needed life from you. Just like in fasting, these pangs don't condemn us. These pangs draw us to what we need most. Sustenance, life, life from something outside of us. But in the midst of it, it kind of feels like God's the one who's punishing us. It's his wrath that's upon us. And part of that's that's how we're dealing with when we begin to recognize that maybe it's because of our own sin that we feel these things, right? That maybe the reason our bodies ache is because of our own transgressions. Because we are living off rhythm and out of beat, that we are living in a way that isn't the way of life, but is the way of the world. That we, when we feel that, we can't, th- we can't help but think, well, that the, the pain then comes from God's wrath rather than the pain is the recognition that what I'm after brings no life. My strength was dried up. My vitality was changed as by the heat of summer. At some point in this process of recognizing our neediness, being open to the forgiveness of the Lord, we recognize that, that there's, there has to be a point where we hit, where we just feel like, man, life has changed. What I'm after in life has changed. What I want, what I'm getting out of life does not live up to what I long for in life. It's dried up. My vitality's changed. So whether that's today or sometime in this season, that's a part of the journey in Lent, right? 
that we would recognize that something's blocking life from us. That we would desire and plead for something to give us life again. So for a few minutes, just for a moment while we have the time, let's ask that question. Let's sit in that question. So I'm going to throw up a couple questions on the screen. And I'm going to ask, where do you feel the lack or draining of life? Life with others, life within, life with God. Where do you feel the lack or draining of life? Life with others, life within, life with God. Because at some point we have to feel it. If we don't feel it, we won't really be able to move into the next movement of confession. Right? And so I know that's hard, but remember where we're at. Remember the atmosphere, the climate of where we're at, right? I'm forgiven. My sin is covered. The Lord holds not iniquity against me. So I can feel these pangs in a safe way, right? I can feel the density knowing that I'm being guided out of it and led out of it. But I, want to, I need to feel it. We have to feel it. So for just two minutes, we're going to be quiet. Ask this question. Have a dialogue with the Lord in the quiet. Where do you feel the lack or draining of life? Feeling the weight of death. 
of the reality that we live in death apart from life in God. Um, it's not easy to, to, to sit under at times. It's probably why we distract ourselves as much as we do. But it's probably also the reason Lent can be the most helpful season for us. Right? That it, in some ways, this extended boundaries of walking through, again, a valley of shadows and death towards, towards Easter is that we're forced over a long period of repetitive actions to feel the weight of a lifelessness, to long for life more, right? And so whether that's in relationship with others, with self, with God, that we feel this. And, and Lent is, again, a season that's probably the most helpful season for us to, to do that. But then, it, but again, it never is meant to just sit there. And that's where I think in my own ignorance growing up with Lent, is that's where it just kind of sat. It was all about feeling the death, the weight of sin, the ramifications of sin, the, 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 the punishment of sin, all those kind of things. And while it's true that we have to feel all those things, experience all those things, the psalmist says, this is, this is what I experience. And remember, I'm on the back end. I'm showing you what wisdom is. And wisdom is that you walk through this. That you don't skip the struggle, but you go through the struggle. You don't skip the valley. You go through the valley. Right? But you don't stop in the midst of it. Right? You don't, this isn't where you camp out. None of the Psalms will lead us into camping out in this place. It will lead us into it. All of our practices won't lead us to live here. It will lead us to go through these. We have to go through it so that we can move to the next part, to confession. The plea always leads to confession. Again, the psalmist won't let us speculate about the reality of our lives. In Psalm 32, verse 5, it says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. Again, there's no speculation. They are, they are not, um, um, there is no whole and complete life. There is not whole and complete life felt every day in every action that we take. That, um, that we do not always live in step with our Heavenly Father. Or we, live, we don't always live well with one another. And so in the confession, just as in the preparation, the three basic words for sin are used. Sin. Iniquity, transgression, all are here. There's something tangible the psalmist is saying, inescapable for us that we have to deal with. There is a name sin. There is something that we can say is off the mark of life, whole and full in God with others. There is iniquity. There's actual guilt of actual actions. <laughs> Things that we know to be truly wrong and wronging of God, wrong to others. There is transgression, rebellion, betrayal of trust. Some actual attitude or action, affection that needs to be acknowledged, exposed, confessed. Confessed, as in verse 5. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Confess. Confessing something real and tangible. This is not a generality. This, this is not just a psychological um, um, like weight of the reality of sin. This is actual things in our lives that are broken. Things, actions, attitudes, affections that are off. We, we don't know those things until we begin to feel the, those things. But once we feel those things and know those things, all we do is confess those things to God. I mean, notice how quickly 
in Psalm chapter five, uh, 32, verse 5, that it says, I acknowledged, I didn't cover or hide, I, didn't, I wasn't deceitful, like I wasn't trying to just tell the Lord a little bit about what's wrong or keep things from the Lord or try to be, um, try to be like Adam and Eve in the garden and kind of hide myself over in the bushes as the Lord walked by. I was fully exposed. I didn't try to hide anything. I acknowledged that I'm broken and sinful and off the mark. I didn't try to cover up where I felt shame. I confessed where I was in rebellion and my heart lacked trust and you forgave. That which I'm shameful for, that which was off the mark. There are no gaps, no requests, no mediators, no steps of repentance between confession to God and forgiveness from God. How incredible is that? How amazing is that? That there are no steps, no gaps, no mediators between confession to God and forgiveness from God. So, for a few moments, confess. Let's confess. Let's move into this confession and ask the question, answer the question, what is blocking life with God and others? Again, we felt it, right? We felt this block. We felt this lack of life, this, de- this deterioration of life, this plea for, for God's wrath to be removed, for, for, um, for, for life to be given. So what's keeping us from life? What's truly keeping us from life? An attitude, an action, an affection? Like it's not, not just general sin, not, not just some, some sort of vague thing, but what really in our life is keeping us from the one who is life? For the next couple of minutes, just say that to God. That's all, he, that's all the psalmist says. Confess it. Acknowledge it. Don't try to hide it. Just confess it.
it seems like as the, the psalmist is kind of recounting for us the wisdom, telling us, here's, here's, here's how life in its fullness, how we get to experience in its fullness and movement through. He's like, he assumes that this kind of time in the shadows and the feeling, the density of it takes a little bit, right? It's a couple verses. There's, there's a lot of detail. Um, and then it's like this confession part. There's just one verse. And it's, and it's complete in the sense of it's all, everything you can think of, every word for sin used in the Hebrew scriptures, right? Like it's, it's complete in that sense. But it's just brief. It's quick. There's not a dwelling on it. There's not a, a sitting in it. It's like I recognize it. I acknowledge it. I confess it. And then there's this proclamation that comes. And it's back again to this longer period of time. Two verses again. Like there's something, in even the way he forms this kind of wisdom poetry that he's helping us kind of see, like that we're move, we move kind of maybe slowly through this first part. We recognize our sin. And then all it is is just this acknowledgement, confession, openness. Before we're open into the pasture, into this grand proclamation of something more again. This longer period of time that was the, of life, Right? And so in verse 6 and 7, there's this proclamation. It says, having acknowledged, having confessed, having not tried to hide, but being fully exposed and not shameful before the Lord. Having heard forgiveness, received forgiveness. The psalmist says, therefore, in verse 6, let everyone who is godly offer your prayer, offer prayer to him at a time when he may be found. Like, in this moment, now is your time of praise. This is the time where you get to talk to God. This, this is communion, right? There was a plea that was kind of at a distance, right, when he was feeling the pain. There was a timidity to go before the Lord because he was hiding something, right? Like, he, he wasn't fully aware. He kept silent in verse 3. All of a sudden, the simple act of confession and, and acknowledgement to God and reception from God for forgiveness opens up this communion, this this prayer, this conversation with God. This, hey, now it's time to talk with God. Now it's time to get on with life with God. Now it's time to have life full with God. Surely the rush of great waters, and the ESV says they shall not reach him. Surely the rush of great waters, better translated, would say, surely the rush of great waters, in him they won't overwhelm us. The rush of all of our emotions, the rush of our circumstances, the, the waves that would toss us off this foundational reality of who we are in God and what God's done for us won't sweep us away. We're in communion with Him. We're not going to be swept out of relationship with Him. This is where we are. We're in the presence of God. One who's forgiven us and knows us, who's given us life. So now's the time to talk with Him. Now's the time to be open and honest with him, to have a relationship and communion with him. In verse seven, it says, you, God, talking about God, you are a hiding place for me. Rather than me hiding from you, you become the place I hide. How awesome is that? Rather than me hiding from you, you become the place I hide. When everything feels off and broken, instead of keeping that from you, I find myself hidden in you. Protected from all that is off and broken. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The words of freedom are louder than the words of enslavement. 
The words of deliverance are louder than the words of condemnation. That's what the psalmist gets to experience, right? That's what the life that he gets to live, that he says is the good life that we're after. So, as one commentator said, if forgiveness is good, and it's good, right? That's, where, that's what, we're, what we're after, right? Forgiveness is good. Verse five, fellowship is better. Communion is better. We're not just after the Lord to forgive us, right? Forgiveness is good. We, we need the Lord to forgive us. But what we're after is relationship, communion. That's what we discover is on the back end of this journey, right? Not just forgiveness of sin, but communion with God, relationship with God. Baptism, full immersion. So in the movement of Lent, we go through the shadows and the valleys to feel the weight of of what draws life out of us. We confess without shame in complete exposure, that which we actually are doing, feeling, thinking that keeps us from life. So we might receive from God forgiveness, relationship, communion, and declare, proclaim what actually is around us. So, for a minute, let's name what surrounds you, what you're baptized into. Again, It's, you're not hiding from God, but you're hidden in God. He preserves you from trouble, surrounds you with shouts of deliverance. Freedom speaks louder than condemnation. So rather than hiding from God, rather than feeling like you're surrounded by death, difficult circumstances, sin, things that draw life out of you, proclaim what's actually true. What surrounds you? You can pray, you can proclaim what the psalmist proclaims if you want. Or you can proclaim what the Spirit lays on your heart. But for the next couple minutes, proclaim. Praise. Say what is actually true, what we discover is actually true as we enter into Lent together.
discovering that uh, forgiveness is the very air we breathe, um, the spirit which fills our lungs, testifying of our communion to life, to his life in us. That's the wholeness, the fullness, the blessedness that the psalmist is hoping that we will experience. That's the blessedness that the psalmist experienced in his own life. That's what he longs for us to experience, what the whole kind of structure, even of this Lenten season, is meant for us, at least in this kind of bound time. That's the hope that we long for. That we will be ones who breathe in life and who the testimony of our life is ones who have been forgiven, whose sins are covered, who the Lord no longer counts iniquity because we're open to him. We're in communion with him. We're walking with him. But there is this piece, and this is where we struggle, but I think this is helpful, and this is why I really appreciate the psalm, the psalmist and his honesty. This life that we have is a really free life, right? Like, listen to verse 8. Here's what the life that, that we, we get, the resurrected life. And this, this moves from the psalmist talking of his own experience, what he felt and what he expressed, to God talking to the psalmist. So that whole pray to God while he might be found, well, here's the conversation. Like, it's a, it's a conversation. Like, it's pretty awesome, right? Like, kind of cool. Like, I'm talking to God. God's talking back to me. That's, that's pretty awesome. All right, so here's God talking back. Here's the prayer fleshed out for us. God speaks. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Rather than being forced through rules and prescriptions for reformation and repentance, for petition and, and for penitence, we are counseled in what keeping with repentance looks like. Because listen, we know, like, hey, listen, there was no gap between confession and forgiveness. There was no steps to take, no acts to do, nothing like that. Like, we confess to God we, and God forgave. But we know that, like, in order for us to experience the fullness of that, something has to change, right? Like, if we admit that we're, our way is off, that we're missing the mark, if we admit that what we're doing is iniquity, right? It's things that are, that are actually things of true guilt. If we, admit, if we admit, if we confess, if we are free to, to, to say that we, our hearts are at times in rebellion, that our hearts at times don't trust your way and trust you, then at some point we have to be moved on to a different way, right? There has to be something more than just what we were doing. There has to be something different, right? That's new life. That's resurrection. That's on the other side, Right? And how, how do we live that life on the other side? Do we do a lot more? Do we try a lot more? Do we keep on, keep on coming back to these same acts of, of dark nights of the soul and confession? Like, in part, there's a pieces of that. There's little pieces of that, maybe. Like, we pray the examine on a regular basis. Like, right? Like, we do a few of those things. But rather, th these things that led us into Lent become the normative. And this is where I've learned to appreciate Lent, right? It's 40 days. It has a beginning. It has an end. Rather than keeping at these things all the time, God responds with, hey, you've done this, so let me counsel you. I know you. You're fully known. You know me. You see me. We're talking. Let me show you. Let me instruct you. In my scriptures, in my spirit, in Jesus, let me teach you the way you should go. The Lord longs for us to walk a path that is right, that's good, that's different than the path that we were on before. The Lord wants to counsel us in that, right? He wants, to, to, that he wants us to be ones who learn how to listen to him and to follow his counsel. 
that are, are ones who willingly sit at his teaching and his instruction, right? That that's our, that's our default going to trying to figure out what we should do, how we should live. That's what the Lord longs for. It's, a, it's relational and it's appropriate relational, right? It's like, hey, like, Lord, you've forgiven me. You've, you've brought me into communion with you. And now you're showing me not just that you've forgiven me and now my sins are covered, but you're actually giving me a way to life in its fullest, to live life in its fullest. That is if we don't act like stubborn animals. Verse 9 says, um, and this is one of my favorite verses um, in the Lenten season. It says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle or it'll not stay near you. Listen, there's a lot of things you can do with a horse and a mule, right? They're good animals. They're pretty awesome animals, really, right? They can carry a lot of, a, a large load. They can help move things. They can be used for battle. Like, they're really productive creatures. It, so he doesn't say don't be like this, like, kind of, like, useless thing like a squirrel. Nobody knows what a squirrel's for, right? Like, they, they bite through and tear up your stuff at your house, make your dogs go angry, all that kind of stuff, but they have no use. Horses and mules have a a use. They've been used throughout human history. Having a lot of them meant you had a lot of prosperity, right? Like, so like, there's this idea that like, 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 ironically, the Lord's saying, um, giving us, comparing us to an animal that's not just worthless with a fluffy tail. He's saying like, hey, don't just be an animal that's useful. Don't be one who can accomplish a lot, be used for a lot of purposes, but who has to be coaxed by bit and bridle, to go where its master wants it to go. One who has to, be, has to be bound in order for it to stay close to the one who oversees its life, to the one who gives it its care, to the one who feeds it, right? Don't be like that, is what the Lord's saying, because you're not that. I want to counsel you, because there's a lot of things you can do with a horse, but you can't give a horse counsel. You can lead a horse, you can beat a horse, you can use a horse, but you can't counsel a horse. No, I, don't, I never watched The Horse Whisperer because it, it didn't seem like, a, like it would be a good movie. But who can, nobody can talk to a horse and make the horse do what it wants it to do, right? That's just not the way it works. That hardly works with our dogs, right? And they're a little more, little more like wanting to do what we want them to do, right? Like there's just this lack of relationship. There's, a, there, there's maybe a relationship, we have a veterinarian with us. There's a relationship with the animals, right? It's not just this completely devoid thing. But the relationship has limits, right? You never really know the horse. We talk for Clara, our dog, at home all the time because Clara can't talk. So, like, we talk for her, have conversations, so we think we know what's going on inside Clara because we have a voice that we use for the Clara voice and have all this, right? But we really don't know Clara. And Clara can hear our voice, but she doesn't know really what's going on in us, Right? Like, but she'll be with us and she'll stay with us and she'll do some of the things we want her to do and it's fun and it's good and it's cute, but it doesn't have that same sort of intimacy that the Lord desires for us, right? Even less, and you have even less of that with a horse, right? And so I'm just I'm teasing this out because this is not what God wants for us. He doesn't want us to be pulled along by all the rules and regulations, bound things that bind us to having to be in his way. Right? All the religious things that we use as bits and bridles to carry us along. He doesn't desire that for us. He wants us to be counseled. He wants to have a relationship with us. But to get there, we've got to go through the valleys of the shadows of death. 
We have to be opened, open to him and to our need for him. So that we might be ones who are led by counsel and not led by fasting, communion, scripture, prayer, all these things that we use as bits and bridles. Good things. When they help us seek his counsel, listen to his teaching, receive his direction, but not when they're bits and bridles to carry us and coax us along to be near him. Right? So, for one minute, because we're going to run close on time, we still have a couple of things to do. I just want us to ask and answer, are we living freely in relationship of humble openness? Do you feel that this is what you're living? Are you living in one who's being taught, counseled by God, who God knows and is known by God, right? Or are you living forcefully in stubborn obligation? Because you're here. So, like, are you here because you are free to be here? Or are you here because you feel like the bit and bridle is on and this is the way the master told you to go? Again, like, just, just confess it. Just say it. Know what the Lord desires for you. He desires freedom for you, right? So if you feel the obligation, don't feel condemnation in it. Feel the invitation to the freedom that the Lord wants. That, that you're not quite where the Lord wants you because you're not free in him to listen and to respond. Because remember, he's already forgiven. So just answer these questions. This will help us as we go forward in Lent together. And we'll have one little last movement as we conclude our time in Psalm 32. Yeah, we'll ask that question. Keep trying to answer those questions as we go in Lent together. But as, as the psalmist teaches us, um, at some point we've got to get back to where we started. We're at the end again, right? The psalm ends this way. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of those who are off the, the way off the path, whose lives aren't open to, to the Lord, who find that their life is, in fact, more aligned with the life of death. 
Maybe even something that we felt over the last few moments, and then we'll definitely feel over the coming weeks. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Genuine forgiveness per- permits freedom to get on with living, says Brueggemann. He also says that guilt can be destructive. It's in the psalm for a reason. But guilt fully embraced and acknowledged in the atmosphere, the spirit of God's actions towards us and our openness to him permits movement, a new reception of life, a new communion with God. And that's what we're after in this Lenten season, right? Not the same thing, but something new. Only then can the guilt be resolved and genuinely relinquished. Only then can we live free from sin. Isn't that what we long for? To be no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. There are, the psalm asserts, no alternative routes, no substitutes. Freedom from guilt requires embracing it and having it dealt with by the mercy of God. So, because that's true, we breathe in one last time, three deep breaths. I'm submerged in his love. I'm called righteous. My heart is aimed straight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that full and whole life comes from your actions towards us and our openness to your acting. So help us to be ones who are open who are for a period of time willing to feel the pain and weight of sin, our sin, so that we might experience, Lord, that what we swim in each morning, each day that we wake, is your patient mercy to forgive, longing that none should perish, but that all should have life full and forever in Jesus. And so in these moments that we might commune with you, speak with you, hear your teaching, instruction, and counsel as one who knows us fully and does not shame us, but hides us from shame. Who does not trouble us and push us and break us, but rather preserves us from trouble who does not surround us with condemnation, but shouts louder deliverance than all the words of condemnation in our hearts and our lives. May we be ones who live a blessed life. Life in Jesus. In his name we pray.